0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Last week, beloved listeners, scientists on the Canary Islands made a, an intriguing discovery deep in the bowels of a dead sperm whale. And no, it uh, it wasn't the, uh, the mummified corpse of Jonah. The poor creature was washed up on the beach some weeks earlier, but it's uh, now been reported that inside the whale's lower intestine was a large waxy deposit believed to be ambergris. Now, this naturally occurring substance has been, well, the holy grail of perfume makers for centuries, and Melville even spent a a chapter discussing ambergris in uh, his masterpiece, Moby Dick. My next guest is about to take us on a journey through the bowels of a sperm whale to discover the origin of this strange substance. Chris Kemp is a scientist based at Michigan State, and he's the author of Floating Gold, a natural and unnatural history of Ambergris*. And uh, I welcome you to our little wireless program, Chris, would you be kind enough to describe this formidable creature from the outside?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Philip. I mean, a, a, a sperm whale is such a superlative animal. Um, a, a, a large male, a bull male, can grow to about 60 feet in length and weigh 50 or 60 tons. And just to kind of maintain that, that enormous bulk They spend much of their time uh, taking in huge lungfuls of air on the surface and then diving down for an hour or longer at a time and going to depths of of a mile or or more beneath the surface where they live basically on on squid. They can eat up to a ton of squid in a day. And uh, they're incredible animals.
1: Now the substance... Ambergris is a byproduct of, as you say, the whale's unusual diet. Talk to me about, uh, well, squid.
0: Yeah, squid. I mean, we're familiar with them. We know what they look like. And um, they're, they're very sort of, um, they're very soft. They don't have any bones. But they do have... Um, a beak, which is very hard and durable, and it really resembles in, in lots of ways a, a parrot's beak. It's kind of black and hard in the same way. It's the same shape as a parrot's beak. And so for sperm whales, they're taking on this enormous amount of squid, up to a ton of squid a day, large ones, small ones. They're absolutely uh, voracious. And for a normal, healthy sperm whale, they'll they'll digest everything apart from those Undigestible beaks, and then they'll regurgitate those out into the ocean. And that is kind of gross, but that's business as usual. But uh, for a small percentage of sperm whales, and it's estimated that it's maybe about 1% of sperm whales, some of those non digestible beaks make it through the stomach into the small intestine where they kind of start to chafe and irritate that fairly um, sensitive and delicate. Gut lining. And so, what happens is that the, the sperm whale starts to produce this sort of uh, fatty, cholesterol rich secretion to just bind up all of the squid beaks and prevent them from uh, damaging the, the gut lining. And that is the beginning of, of ambergris, if you like.
1: So, what finishes up as perfume begins in a, as a sort of a form of constipation.
0: Absolutely. Isn't it strange? Yeah.
1: Incidentally, you talked about stomach. I understood that the whales, like a land-based cow, has four stomachs.
0: True. Yeah. It is. It, that's correct. It has four stomachs, and it doesn't. It doesn't uh, ruminate on its food in the same way as a cow does. But yeah, it has it has four different chambers to its stomach.
1: Now the bits of ambergris can bob around the briny for many years, can't they?
0: Yeah, that's true, and you know not only can they, but that's a that's a really important part of the ambergris life cycle, if you like. Um, When when fresh ambergris is ejected from a whale, um, it's black and sticky, and it smells really quite fecal. It's it's definitely poopy, if you like. I mean, we there's no mystery about where it's come from. It's definitely come from the, the hindgut of an animal. It smells like that. And it really requires that journey kind of floating around in the ocean, being oxidized, being dehydrated to gradually kind of a, a molecule at a time um, become what we think of as the ambergris that goes into fragrance. So it does definitely require that journey
1: now, is there a Sotheby's or Christie's that sells the stuff? Because it, I've got a question you now about its value.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's something much more kind of um, mysterious and unpoliced than Sotheby's or Christie's. It's, it's uh, something that has always been there, but it's definitely blossomed since the arrival of the internet that can connect people, you know, from across... Uh, different continents and different parts of the world, and it's uh, it's kind of an undercover market for these mysterious substances. And um, yes, it's definitely bought and sold and trafficked and sent all over the world. And
1: as you, as your title suggests, it's worth a lot of do- lot of dollars, about twenty thousand US dollars for a one pound clump.
0: True enough. Although it's like a lot of rare, um, mysterious substances, it would have to be, um, appraised and graded and smelled and weighed and poked and prodded and, uh, and you know, people it's like truffles or wine or, um, you know, caviar, things like that, that there's, there's a lot of mystery attached to it. So it's what it's, I always say it's worth what someone is willing to pay for it, and that changes with every single lump and piece that's found.
1: Chris, when did uh, humans figure out that ambergris was uh, so useful for for making perfume?
0: That is a great question, and it's one that I don't think will ever really be resolved. Uh, Humans have been using ambergris for... a few different functions for at least, you know, several thousand years and it's been trafficked for several thousand years and we know that. But, um, you know, this idea that it is a, a really vital component in fragrance, um, you know, just, just sitting down and thinking about who discovered that and, and just how they discovered its kind of molecular purpose is something that that we just will will never fully know.
1: Well, before it's life in, in modern perfumes, you point out that uh, early Arab civilizations used it as an incense, but also an aphrodisiac.
0: Yes, of course, yeah. Yeah, the most mysterious things we've used over the, over the centuries and millennia as aphrodisiacs, but ambergris, I think probably because it just it was such a mysterious substance we didn't even know fully where it came from that it was a a, a byproduct of whales until the 1720s before that um the scientists of all the different eras would weigh in and suggest that it was um a strange coral or a fruit that had fallen into the ocean and and sort of bubbled around in it for a hundred years uh, or there was a mysterious island that, uh, that, where there was a spring that produced ambergris, the, all of the world's um, ambergris, and so, um, yes, you know, those are the kind of substances that people say this this will save me.
1: <laughs> I was tempted to make a bad pun about. Uh aphrodisiacs and uh, sperm whales, but I shall, <laughs> I shall resist the temptation. Now, at some point, someone decided ambergris was good to eat, including an old English king. Tell us more.
0: Charles II. Yeah, yeah. Many many centuries ago, he, one of his favourite meals was eggs with ambergris, and uh, I, the, the records suggests that he would have something like scrambled eggs and then he would grate, or someone would grate the ambergris onto the eggs for him like it was, um, you know, pepper or a garnish or something like that.
1: Or, indeed, as you mentioned earlier, there's a parallel there with the use of truffles.
0: Exactly. I mean, there is, you know, there are are other really interesting parallels, like over in New Zealand uh, where... There are some really dedicated hunters who are looking for ambergris every day after a high tide. Some of them train dogs, just like people train dogs and pigs to go hunting for truffles, because um, just like truffles, ambergris has this really distinct uh, fragrance to it, and so that you can you can train a dog to go and find something that we can't.
1: Now, I'm going to invade your privacy here. I know you haven't eaten it for uh, the purposes of aphrodisia, but you have, in fact, eaten it.
0: True enough, yeah. I really felt like when I was writing a book about it that I had to try to experience it on every possible level that I could, (laughs) especially a level that people had experienced it in history. And so I did. I tried Charles II's recipe of ambergris on eggs, I tried cooking it into a, into a pasta. I tried putting it into hot chocolate. I tried everything that I thought would be would make it approachable, if you like. And uh, trust me, it's not approachable.
1: <laughs> and remind me about Melville and Moby Dick. The Good Herman dedicates a chapter to the
0: subject. He does indeed. Yeah, um, you know, at, during the whaling era that's when we first really came into close contact with whales and in a, you know, very bloody and violent way. But that's, that's what really opened the window into where ambergris came from. It was that discovery, if you like, was a, was a byproduct of the whaling era when whalers were, you know, hauling sperm whales onto the decks of enormous whaling ships and cutting them open and finding it right there um, where it was made.
1: Call me Ishmael, but call my guest Chris Kemp. When did you become so obsessed with the subject?
0: Yeah, I was was living in New Zealand uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago, and I switched the news on one night, and uh, a mysterious object had washed ashore uh, on a beach near Wellington, and people... We're going crazy about it, like walking onto the beach with shovels and hacking into it and taking bags of it home. And the newscaster said it was suspected ambergris. And I'm a scientist and a biologist and, you know, I'd never heard of it. And so went to Google and the internet and all those things that we normally rely on for information. And there just wasn't that much information out there. And the information that was there all seemed to conflict with itself and so that kind of sent me on a journey of just like my own personal interest trying to really get a grip on what this stuff was why it's so valuable who uses it and what for um and that's where it began and i kind of accidentally wrote a a book about it really
1: now I introduced you via the uh, the whale recently found beached in the Canary Islands, and tis said that the ambergris is worth half a million, half a million euros, indeed. But you have some doubts.
0: Yes, um, you know I hate to to be a, a party pooper, but um, I, you know, since I wrote the book, I get sent so many photos of suspected ambergris and in the years in the decade that i've been sort of reviewing these pictures i don't think i've ever seen one where i've said oh boy they've found it that's the real thing and uh this is I, i saw the images in the news reports and it didn't seem like it was the real thing either But um, there's also a big caveat with ambergris. We talked about that journey it embarks on and spends years, decades, maybe even centuries um, bobbing around in the ocean, slowly becoming the real thing, a molecule at a time. And it hasn't done that. You know, it was found inside the whale. And that's sort of a – even if it is ambergris, that's a really important part of the journey that cannot be – uh, mimicked in, in any other way, and so I do have my doubts, yeah.
1: I understand from you that ambergris can be a death sentence for a whale.
0: Yes, you know, for an animal that lives most of its time a mile under the surface, we don't know all that much about it still. Um, we've never seen a whale kind of ejected into the ocean, um, but we do often find whales that, have, uh, that are dead and, and have washed up and have blocked intestines because of a piece of it. And so we know that in many cases, it is fatal to have this in, intestinal blockage that prevents them from uh, eating and living normal lives.
1: And you also point out that only about 1% of whales are likely to produce it in any
0: case. Yes, hence its rarity. You know, something that was more common wouldn't have um, sort of generated the mystery and cachet that Ambergris does. It really requires that that rarity to become this, you know, substance that is so sought after.
1: Surely something of this value must now be made in synthetic form.
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's... You know, I love the idea that we can take something that's so rare and so mysterious and um, so unexplainable and just make it in a lab. And you know, we can and we and we can't. We fragrance experts have made something, a molecular synthetic substance that kind of mimics some of the effects of ambergris, but I have smelt it myself, and it's just not convincing. And I always so it's like the difference between um between seeing the Beatles live in 1966 <laughs> and seeing a, a a poor cover band version of the Beatles now at your local bar <laughs> you know it looks it looks kind of right and it sounds kind of right but you know you can't fool yourself you know what you're seeing
1: I think Herman Melville and Captain ahab would uh be very approving of you, and as indeed I am, Chris. Thanks for coming on. It's been an intriguing chat with Chris Kemp, a scientist based at Michigan State University and author of Floating Gold, The Natural and Unnatural History of Ambergris. It's published by uh, the University of Chicago Press. Thanks, Chris.
0: Thanks so much, Philip.